On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo and welcome to video episode number 58. And if you're listening on the podcast platform, season three, episode 15 of Music is Not a Genre. Each week I take a release from my collection, I discuss it, I give you my take on it, I throw in some interesting bits and bobs, and I connect it to my music, other music, and other things in the world. Trying to bust myths and break down barriers and things like that. Thank you to all of my Patreon patrons, to anyone who has subscribed on my YouTube channel, uh, who has uh, watched, listened on the podcast platforms, clicked and shared, especially shared. I appreciate all of this. Uh, if you've read the text, if you've, if you've checked out the music, the links I put to the music, I appreciate every single bit of it. And thank you so much. Uh, you know my objectives. I say it at the end. I like to say it at the beginning right now because I think it's important. My objectives are music, conversation, and connection. And uh, not necessarily in that order. So thank you. This week is uh, exciting for me, uh, as I hope it always is, uh, and, that's, and that's because I am actually in the midst of something that I have called in another podcast, a chronolography, where I listen to an artist's entire catalog in chronological order, and every one of them, you learn something different. Right. And I've talked about the, 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 you know, what the great benefits are of doing this and how it really doesn't take very long. Right. So this week's topic, uh, the title is When the Clash Became Bad, a stellar second act. If you know anything about either of those bands, you know the joke that I went for there. But if not, that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to explain it. So what I did was. Uh, and I honestly don't remember why I was prompted to do this. I think it was a song I heard or something like that. They were on my list. I went back and listened to the entire catalog of The Clash and then followed through like I do with many bands. What I do when I do a chronography is if any of the band members were one of the primary forces behind the band, primary creative force, one of the songwriters, you know, lyricists, whatever, uh, and went on to another part of their career doing something else, either solo, with a band, what have you, I will then follow that thread and listen to that as well. So, for example, when I, I mean, I already knew really all the Beatles catalog, but 
when I went back and listened through to it, I then listened to the solo careers of every single Beatle, um, inclu- and including Wings and all that for Paul McCartney. And I've done that, like I said, with uh, any any band that I start, I follow it all through all the way to the end. And it's really cool because you get to see, you get to hear where those subsequent bands and the and the you know type of music that they do came from. Let's say you're someone who only knew the the second band or the second part of the career, then you get to find out where it came from. Or if you only knew the first, you get to see where it went. And so with the Clash. I knew a bit of both. And let me give you, uh, you know, let me give you some examples of how I classify these. Not that it matters, because really it's all cool and any, anybody who's that passionate about music continues a career. So some go on to solo careers like uh, when Ozzy Osbourne left Black Sabbath. So when I listen to Black Sabbath, I listen to all their first part of their, you know, career and to the Ronnie James Dio era and anything even after that and all the reunions straight up to their latest. I also, though, listen to Ozzy. I even listen to Tony Iommi's solo album. I think he had just had one. Can't remember. But again, main creative forces. Uh, some don't go on to solo careers. They go into a different, t- different strain of music career, such as Danny Elfman. If you know him at all, you know him because... He scores film and TV, The Simpsons theme, the, you know, he's worked on uh, so many different films. But he got his start uh, as part of the band Oingo Boingo, which actually had quite, you know, quite a few hits, a, a solid number of hits. And when I, I don't really know that I haven't done their chronography, so I don't know their history. But when they broke up or however it happened, he went on and continued his much, much longer and more successful career scoring. Uh, some do the retread circuit you know they stop making new music they go on to do tours and things like that of all their old music and you know take it or leave it like it or not you know that that happens out there but then there are those who feel the need to to reinvent the band experience um paul cartney and wings is you know one that you would think of as a prime example uh, of someone who had nearly as much success with the second band as he did with the first right i mean you can't really top the Beatles, but you know what I'm talking about if you know any music from the 1970s, right? Well, the Clash, the main creative forces in the Clash were Joe Strummer and Mick Jones. And so I am in the midst of this chronography. I've listened through all of the Clash. I've listened through uh, the first part of Mick Jones' uh, After Clash career. I've listened to all of Joe Strummer's After Clash career, and I haven't quite gotten to the rest of it. But what happened was this. So just a quick, you know, if you know the Clash, if you don't know the Clash, I'm not sure why you're listening to this, but hello, hi, and it's very nice to see you or or sense you out there. but the Clash were a seminal punk band from Britain. Uh, they explored uh, personal things, political things, all of that. They very quickly, after the first couple of albums, branched out into many, many, many different styles, uh, including uh, you know reggae and and uh, rockabilly and a whole bunch of ska, a bunch of other things, and uh, had a very brief career, a relatively brief career, but hugely successful and hugely influential. The punks back then, uh, after a while, stopped kind of respecting them because they they decided to, to go their own way and do their own thing. 
and not adhere to strict punk rules, so to speak. Although I think punk is more of an aesthetic and an attitude than a sound, but I'm going to get into that later. It's kind of why I, you know, uh, put these two together. So around, uh, I'm not going to go through the whole Clash history, although I will get to a little bit later. Um, the, the 83-ish, 84, two of the band members left, or I think one was kicked out, and Mick Jones left. And he formed a band called General Public that did not last long. Um, I, he wasn't really a part of the recording, so I didn't listen to that, you know, say what you will about that. And then he formed a band, Top Risk Action Company, Track which didn't do anything other than get together and get some ideas, but it's considered the precursor to the band that he really formed in 84, uh, Big Audio Dynamite, which is, this is one of their albums right there. And Big Audio Dynamite uh, released their first album in 1985, and they released nine albums uh, from 85 to, I believe, around 97. So a long career, and actually longer than The Clash. And uh, then, just to follow the thread, right after that, Joe Strummer did his solo thing with a band called the Mescaleros, put out three albums, sadly died age 50 of a heart attack. Shortly after that, uh, and this was after Big Audio Dynamite had broken up, Mick Jones formed another band, Carbon Silicon. That's the one I haven't listened to yet. I'll update you. I don't know if I'm going to update you. I have no idea. Um, but the, the point being, there's more to go and I'm excited about that. I want to see where that heads. Well, you know, one of the things that made the clash, the clash was they found every possible way to buck convention, right? They subverted, uh, all kinds of rules and conventions, whether it had to do with what you can and can't do, so to speak in, in music or in a song or on an album, what you can and can't do in the industry. Uh, perfect example being, uh, they wanted to they wanted to release London Calling as a double album, and they got a tremendous amount of um, you know resistance from the record label, which they ended up winning that, and they did release it as a double album. But at the same time, Bruce Springsteen released The River as a double album, and it was they were on the same label as Bruce Springsteen. And he got no resistance whatsoever. So they were a little pissed at that. So they came back and said, okay, for our next release, Sandinista, we're going to go ahead and make it a triple album. Released that and even took a pay cut in terms of royalties in order to help people afford to buy this triple album. And if you know anything about The Clash, you know that London Calling, Sandinista, Combat Rock, those are... Those are the sweet spot as far as awesomeness for them, although there's something great on every album. Even the album they did after Mick Jones left in 85, which is kind of weird in terms of its production, had some good things on it. Um, so they were like, they, they were interested in making the music they wanted to make and putting it out and having people hear it. And the music they wanted to make uh, more incre increasingly did not fit into a category. Certainly had elements of punk to it in terms of sound, but what was the most punk about it was their attitude towards sharing music and making music in any possible way and in saying, screw you to the industry, you know, uh, you know, we're going to do what we want to do because the most important thing here is the music. Well, so 
Mick Jones forms Big Audio Dynamite. And he uh, took a lot of the elements that he had contributed, you know, or to, to the Clash or, you know, learned from the Clash as well and uh, brought them over, but then also added uh, electronic elements, um, f- more funk, although the Clash did do some funk uh, and, and even disco, funny enough. Um, big Audio Dynamite, the more electronic, more dance. They added some hip hop. They added uh, Afrobeat, um, world, you know, world elements, uh, and heavy, heavy sampling. So many samples, samples from films, samples from other songs. Uh, just incredible how many samples are on each album. Um, not to mention there were some songs themselves that had 15 samples, you know, which I'm actually going to get to in terms of this week's release. Um, and so, you know, Mick Jones carried on that legacy and that attitude from The Clash of wanting to do whatever music he wanted to do with his bandmates, of course, and their input. Um, and Big Audio Dynamite put out, ah, geez, I believe it was four albums, and then big and then they and then he restructured the band and called it Big Audio Dynamite Two, put out another album called Kool Aid, and then he put out this album. And for you listeners and non viewers out there, I'm holding it up to the screen. It says Bad to the Globe, the Globe, 1991. Uh, so if you're counting, I believe that's album number six, right? And this was the peak of their success. This was where um, the song Rush came from, Situation No When, you know, that song, where the globe came from, and uh, several other good, really, really good songs. The whole album is really good. And so they had achieved kind of the heights of success the way that The Clash had, and in some ways even more so at the time. So not, that was 91. Uh, Bad put out Bad Two put out one more album under that name, and then put out an album under the name Big Audio, and then in '95, so that's '94, '95, something like that, and then put out one final album in '97 under the original name Big Audio Dynamite, and you know uh, some fluctuating things in the middle as far as what I liked and what didn't resonate with me. But the the experimentation was there all the way through. I mean, there were songs that were six, seven, eight, ten minutes um, with a, a lot of repetition and a lot of sampling and cutting and things like that and elements that included all of the types of music that I mentioned before and then some. And so it was their way, again, of doing, well, this is what we're going to do. We're just going to subvert the industry and subvert the idea of what it means to make music and what music can be and put it out. I mean, think of the song Rush, right? If you know it, and you know the not just the single edit, but the but the full version, you know that right in the middle of it, there's a it just stops and there's a dude talking about music, and the music that accompanies it changes. And it doesn't transition back into the faster paced song that you know until God, a good minute, at least, if not longer. And that's not something you do, and especially not in a song that has a dance beat. You don't just all of a sudden stop for that long of a time. But that's what they did. It's one of the things they did. Not in every song. I mean, there were some songs that were just straight up dance or straight up rock that just went, you know, or even reggae or ska 
um, that went straight through with the same beat, but they had other experimental elements in them. And what I'm curious about is then with carbon silicon, apparently they continue, they, they added back, especially in the last Big Audio Dynamite album and the last two really, but especially the last one, more rock elements to it. I believe that carried through to carbon silicon, but had a very, again, electronic, you know, kind of glitch and sampling base to it. One of the things that I read was that Mick Jones and the band decided that the most important thing, again, was the music and sharing the music with people. So they released it for free on their own website, uh, which, you know, when you think of somebody like Lars Ulrich from Metallica, who was so pissed way back when, when Napster and things like that, where people could get music for free, uh, that's revolutionary for an artist. Now, a couple of things there. When you're a struggling artist, when you're, you know, the, when you're a struggling artist, you want to make as much money as you can so you can continue your career, right? Uh, when you're a successful artist, there are times where you, yeah, sure, you want to make money. Now, the thing is, when you're successful, there are other ways to earn it on royalties from old songs or touring or various other things. You get more work because people know you, etc. Um, so it's easier for somebody like Mick Jones to, to release the music for free, but it's still not easy in that, do you know Carbon Silicon? Have you ever heard of them? I read their name three times over a couple week period before I remembered it. And I'll remember it now once I listen to all their albums very soon. But, you know, they they took a hit for this. because I would imagine that the record company was like, well, what can we do with you? And so it was like, well, we're not going to play this game. We're going to release the music we want to release and do it straight to the people. And my take on that as a creator is I would rather more people hear my music in whatever possible way they can, whether that means for hundredths of a cent per stream, sadly, or buying the actual, you know, music off of my website or anything, or, or just finding it somehow for free or it was shared by someone. All that is awesome to me. You know, if the, the, the money will come or not come in whatever way that it does, but the fact that the music is shared and being heard is what is the most important thing to me as well. And I, and I think this goes back in part to what I wanted to touch on with the idea of the punk aesthetic, which is that punk is not a sound. And I think the people who got stuck there really almost ceased to be punk. They might have sounded punk. But they became so strictured in the decisions they made about what their music could be that they lost that punk attitude and aesthetic, which is anything goes, which is uh, don't follow the rules or make your own rules and then break your own rules. And that's something that uh, the members of The Clash did really well. And like I said, in particular here, Mick Jones, listen to Rush, you know, listen to The Globe, this album. And then go back and listen to Combat Rock. And that's nine years apart. There, It's a world of difference. You'll hear similarities. You'll hear things in there that carried over. But the music doesn't sound the same. You know, even though he sampled uh, Should I Stay or Should I Go for the, for the Globe, the song The Globe, uh, the music you could clearly is very different. You know, more electronic and et cetera, et cetera. 
That's not the point. The point is that punk is the attitude you bring to it. Punk is we're not in it for the money. We're in it for the music. Punk, punk is they tell you you have to do a three-minute song. We'll do a 20-minute song or a 17-minute song. There was one of Joe Strummer's uh, songs from the Mescalero was 17 minutes, you know, or they'll tell you that you have to have a steady beat for four minutes. We're going to stop in the middle of the song and, and do a completely different beat. Just subverting convention left and right, left and right. And, you know, that is something that I always admire. I, I always admire bands and artists who do a mix of styles. That's the whole point. Music is not a genre, right? And what I didn't know, though, until I listened through to all this, I had a sense that Big Audio Dynamite had some influence on me, but I didn't know how much until I started listening back to their first few albums. In particular, uh, their, oh boy, first, third, and sixth albums. This one here, The Globe, is the sixth. There are songs on there, and even their second album to some degree, and I believe a song off of their fourth uh, but the fifth wasn't released in the U.S. Um, and much of the fifth album ended up on the sixth album anyway in a different form. But there were songs on there that I hadn't heard in decades. And they just came right back to me. Like the song uh, Escarita or Champagne. I think they're both from Tighten Up Volume 88. Which the first album and third are probably my favorites as far as straight through listening experiences. Although the sixth, you know, gives them a run for their money. Uh, but those songs on there, um, A Party, which is something about lions in the jungle or something like that. I mean, I can't even begin to explain. I listen to these songs and like, why do I know them so well? And I haven't heard them in so long. And I think you can hear that influence and that sense of uh, kind of doing what I want to do and mixing things up in a sense. And a lot of what I do, including the song that I can, that I included here, which is off my band Rex album, uh, Syzygy for the Weird, a recent album from the box set, The Weird Objective. And the song is called Make Me Mike My Mouth. But honestly, you could, you could pick, I would say, at least a third of the songs from The Weird Objective, like 10 songs, and you would get a sense of that punk aesthetic of this is what I'm doing. You know, the whole idea of releasing a 32 track, uh, you know, box set as a relative unknown that is multi, multi-genre, among other things, is is being a little rebellious, it's being a little punk. It's being like, this is not how you play the game, right? Well, now it is. This is what I want to do, you know? And I have... Precursors like Big Audio Dynamite and The Clash to thank for that, among many other bands. Um, you know, uh, do you, you know, do you know The Clash? Actually, I want to say this. I'm going to say it before I wrap up, just because it's some, it's one of the, another great example. When Nirvana broke up because you know Kurt Cobain, uh, Dave Grohl came out of the gate and formed Foo Fighters and has been successful for 25 years and is and is now an elder statesman that is revered. And as, as he and his and band should be, took elements of Nirvana and did a whole bunch of other things with them that Nirvana might have gone on to do, who knows. But the point is, he was one of the, he, you know, and he was sort of not even really one of the main creative forces behind Nirvana because they, they weren't around long enough for him to really spread his wings in that way. But man, you know, talk about doing what you want and doing it well and and just wanting to reinvent that band experience, you know, in a different way than Mick Jones did.
you know, but, but, you know, similar in terms of attitude. Do you know Big Audio Dynamite? Do you remember any of them? Do you remember their big song, Rush? Do you remember other of their songs? Do you know The Clash? Do you, uh, do you hear similarities in those two bands? I would love to know that. What do you, what do you, how do those bands connect other than the Mick Jones factor? How do they connect sonically, creatively? Are there other incredible second act reinventions that you uh, have always loved that you would like to talk about? Please comment. Let me know what you think about any of this. Let me know your experience with, with, with this journey because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thank you once again. And I will talk to you next week. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.